Welcome to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet providers of life-changing financial advice. Suffolk is a very diverse county uh, ranging from the heathlands and forests of the west of the county across to the beaches and ports of the east and within that we find all sorts of fascinating stories from businesses, from charities, uh, from community groups and that's really what the podcast is all about, bringing you something that you may not even be aware is going on within this amazing county of ours and today is no different today we uh, speak with a taxidermist would you believe of all people a taxidermist and this is uh, Hannah Debnam who is from Truly St Mary just outside Felixstowe and Hannah is going to talk us through how she came to be interested in uh, taxidermy how she now carries that out as a business and also the trials that she went through as a young adult, as a child and a young adult, um, with health issues and bullying, difficulties at school, and to be able to come out of that with this incredible skill and art. Um, we do get into some detail about the work of taxidermy. We talk a bit about death. So there are some subjects that might not be that easy to listen to. But what came out of it all was Hannah's love for the beauty that she sees within nature itself and how taxidermy is a way of preserving that just hearing her talk about jackdaws and peacocks and so on is absolutely fascinating so please do uh, take a listen to our conversation with Hannah Debnam. So taxidermy is well, I'd call it an art form where you take a dead animal, or in my case, a dead bird, and I will skin it and recreate it so it looks alive again. So um, the word taxidermy, the taxi part means movement, and dermy is the um, part of the skin, so the dermis, so taxidermy, that sort of thing. But yes, in my, in my case, it's very much bird taxidermy. Yeah, so we'll talk about why birds in a, in a little while. We'll come back on to that. Um, but again, in our conversation, it's evident that you love all sorts of animals. Yeah. Um, you have your own yeah. <laughs> selection. <laughs> so what yeah. do you have? I mean, these are live animals that you, you have, first of all. Well, our neighbours call us the zoo, so um, there's quite a few. We've got three bearded dragons, we have a fish tank, then my husband's fish, so I, I can't remember what breeds they or species they are, I just leave them to him. <laughs> um, we've got four cockatiels, two kakarikis, a conure, and they're inside, and then outside we've got an aviary with two red golden pheasant hens Goodness. a lady amherst hen a lady amherst cockbird called Artie. he's i love him um we've got budgies that we've rescued we've got two one-legged teals that we've rescued oh, goodness. um another two teals that have got two legs um there are zebra finches canaries um 
there's diamond doves in there as well so we've, we've got a pretty good mix out in the aviary <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's why we called the zoo that's <laughs> what you, yeah yeah so obviously i've come across cockatiels but kakarikis what are kakarikis they're the only way i can describe them is little balls of annoying <laughs> sorts is the best way to put it they're they're so curious about everything and everything has to be touched with their feet so they've they use their feet to to sort of explore and they've just they look like they've just got dinosaur feet and they're just all the time picking with their feet and they've they make this sound like Mrs. Brown's laugh. But that's all we get sort of like <laughs> in the morning is I'll be doing my breakfast and then Stitch will start with this, this call that sounds like Mrs. Brown and then Kermit joins in. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, for God's sake, I just want my breakfast and a cup of tea just without <laughs> you lot starting. So you must have a lot of uh, work to do every morning. Do you, do, do you feed them it all or uh, yeah. do they all have set patterns as to when yeah. you... So I get up, I will put whatever I'm working on into its first bath of the day. And then I will go down and have my breakfast, uh, feed and water the inside birds, feed the dragons. <laughs> and then I will go outside and feed and water the A3. And whilst feeding feed and watering, I will probably get bombarded by budgies as I hand read most of them and they're absolutely bonkers so I get pelted by budgies whenever I go in there oh my goodness do you have to <laughs> wear any protective clothing or uh you're perfectly no safe? this they just comes straight at you they just want to they just want to be on you they, they're like mum loves me sort of thing they're right brilliant I love them but they're they're nuts so, so they know that you're coming with food so they just want to show yeah. a bit of affection or they just want to bite my hoodie that's all they've got this thing with my fleece hoodie they just want to bite it I'll have like six budgies on me and they just want to bite me hoodie they don't want to do nothing else just bite me hoodie but I Very just good. I wonder about them at times so, really <laughs> <laughs> so there must be lots of colours in there if you've got cockatiels and kakarikis and it's, it's very colourful yeah, yeah. There must be something else to see so um so you're situated just outside Felix, so in Trimley St Mary. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever thought of opening as the Trimley uh, <laughs> Wildlife Sanctuary or something? Is that? <laughs> Our neighbours have suggested it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that must be an awful lot going on. So, you have you always been a animal lover? What's the what's the history there? Pretty much the get go. Ever since I was a kid, I've had gerbils I've always had a dog ever since I was or ever since I can remember really and it's just something I've always been passionate about I've always been drawn more to animals and humans and even from a very early age I sort of related more to any pet that I had than any actual human friends that I had which sounds really weird but I, or I definitely related more to animals than humans in all, all aspects, especially later life as well, I, I definitely related more to animals. So um, <clears throat> did that affect you as you were growing up? Was that noticeable in friendships, friendship groups? I was always called weird because I, I was a passionate animal lover and like my friends and all the other kids at school didn't quite understand that. But 
it's just something that I've always always done always had and I sort of would always brush off their remarks because I was like well I don't want to play PS2 games I like you know just being in nature sort of thing it was so it's like yeah you can say I'm a weirdo and all that but I, I still preferred the company of animals yeah yeah and it sounds like from just looking at the information on your website that that's some of your earliest memories seem to be occasions when you had close contact with animals, wildlife parks, and so on. Yeah. Are there things that you still would remember now that? I always you? remember going to Paradise Wildlife Park. We lived in Waltham Cross, just outside of London, and we'd go to Paradise Wildlife Park. And I remember, I, I don't even know how old I was, I must have been. Well, about under nine years old or so and um me and my mum were in the zoo and these zookeepers just walked this pair of baby tigers in front of us on a lead and I just thought it was the most amazing thing in the world it was just it was like one of the most amazing moments in my life I can still remember it vividly just a white tiger cub and a, a normal tiger cub just on a lead walked in front of us through the park it's amazing <laughs> but every sort of like memory that I have seems to be animal related in some way so some might think that would then lead you towards um looking for a career in a wildlife park in a zoo or something like that is that yeah. been something that you've thought about I did I, I always did that thing of every little girl does I, I want to be a vet when I get older and then I sort of as I grew up I thought I, I couldn't be a vet because I couldn't I couldn't put an animal to sleep I couldn't you know do operations on an animal because I thought because I love animals I couldn't do that sort of thing and then I thought well I could be a receptionist in a, in a vet and I thought well then I have to you know deal with people who have just had their pets put to sleep and I was like I can't I can't deal with that either so that was sort of like those two rolled out for me because I was like I can't I can't do that no I just couldn't have dealt with people that would come out like had their dogs put put to sleep because I would have started crying with them and it's mm. kind of not the thing that you want when you've just had an animal put to sleep where a receptionist is equally in as much flood of tears as you are so that was that out the window yeah Although that said, you know, having someone who has sympathy uh, and empathy is is actually a, a nice thing. But I guess I can understand your concern there that you'd be thinking you've got lots of other tasks to be getting on with, and you would be so focused on this, yeah, the grief of of the some of the the individual who's lost their pet. So yeah, no, yeah. I can understand that's that's tricky, but. <laughs> intertwined of course with all of this i mean we've obviously just touched on the subject there of of the death of an animal is that that seems to the subject of death seems to be an issue that you were you really seem to have a lot of concerns with i mean all children growing up at different stages will be introduced to that yeah pets i assume played a part in that i i think Growing up as a child, when you do lose a pet, you do understand life a lot more because it's, it's 
going to sound weird to say this, but it sort of eases you into when you lose a family member because you've experienced what it's like to lose a pet. Um, but I had a lot of struggles with death growing up. I lost um, my nan and my granddad when I was about nine and ten, and that was within about a, a year of each other, and it was very hard to understand even though I'd sort of had the experience with my pets passing I couldn't really process what had happened and I at that age I understood everything as well because I know a lot of kids sort of at that age would be you know just want to stick their head in a tablet sort of thing but I, I fully understood everything that was going on and I think it made me overthink about well what about when my mum dies? What about when my dad dies? That sort of thing. And it just kept rolling and rolling over in my head. And it became a big thing. And death was something that I was, I was really terrified of. It was something that was, you know, in my mind quite a lot. And it, you know, it did, it did terrify me. I was really afraid of death, yeah. Mm. It seems to, in reading between the lines as in your biography it seems to suggest that there if anything I suppose now I know this was going back a few years ago but now you would say that's a meant it was a mental health issue, oh yeah really. definitely yeah yeah how, how did I, that yeah how did that manifest itself I sort of I wouldn't really sleep at night because it would just always be there and it just I couldn't sleep that's all I was thinking about it was just always there and it, it would if I'd go and do something it would then creep back into my, my mind it was always there and I did did get over it. I can't remember how I, I sort of got through it but it was a very um it was a grim time experience in that yeah and you physically um in your around that time and maybe into your teenage years struggled with health issues yeah. as well uh again how did these things then all um impact you as you were growing up i mean teenage years are your formative years aren't they they're, they're yeah. things that affect how you who you become how you become my teenage years they weren't great i had a group of friends who then because I couldn't keep up with them they decided that they were just going to turn against me I got sent death threats and everything they knew about me was used against me um all that sort of thing so I don't know it did I think the the sort of the fear of death and my physical health at the same time definitely were intertwined with a few things there growing up mm. so uh, what what then began to change for you because we look at that early teenager and see someone really struggling with issues that obviously were mm. constantly giving you fear um bullying difficulties at school physical health and I'm talking to you now and 
you've got this thriving activity that you are obviously extremely good at where did everything change or how did everything change I think I sort of I accepted that I wasn't like everyone else like health-wise um I think it literally was just accepting that I for a long time I didn't I couldn't accept that I wasn't like you know the other kids at school just accepting that I was the way I was and that that was it weren't going to change it so make the most of what you can sort of thing Mm -hmm. you just have that sudden realization and just go well I can't can't do anything about it so just enjoy what you can when you can yeah that sort of thing that's a fascinating um outcome that you reach that conclusion because i think there's lots of teenagers who struggle because they so want to be like everybody else yeah whereas as you're just saying actually the recognition that you're your own person you'll have your own interests not to worry if you're swimming in the opposite direction to other people yeah it's like my um, niece she is i think she's eight now i'm terrible with ages <laughs> you're changing don't they that's the problem yeah <laughs> when i look at her and i just think you couldn't pay me enough money to be your age again because i mean now you've got the age of social media and everything's filters and i'm just like i couldn't couldn't do with that just no chance but it's, it's, I'm glad I didn't go through what I went through now because I think that would, I think it would have been a very different sort of experience, especially with social media. I mean, I was harassed on social media, but that was in the very early day, days of it. Yeah. So when you think about it now and how they, all the access they have to like Facebook and all that just sends a shiver down your spine. Mm. so I'm just like yeah you couldn't pay me enough money to be an eight-year-old or a teenager right now it's no chance yeah, lots of uh, challenges uh, and again it seems like though that even your sort of <coughs> later teens uh, weren't easy with your your health too so you left school early um yeah I left at 15 I think it was 15 something like that yeah so if we can just touch on the subject of education then or qualifications, <laughs> what what happened there? Were you you did just not not take any exams or um you... I didn't take any exams. Um I was put in the disruptive pupils class because it was easier for, for me to just be in one classroom. Um I was being sent work from the classrooms where what I should have been in, but they kept losing my work that was due to be sent to me so a lot of the stuff I never received um so that they, they lost uh, like I was preparing for GCSEs they lost papers for me and they, they just couldn't really be bothered with me and it got to a point where, where my mum said well okay if you're not going to bother with my daughter I'm just going to take her out of school and homeschool her and um I remember we got a phone call from the school saying um, if I came in and put my name down on the paper for the GCSEs, it would mean they get a, I can't remember what it's called, um, 
towards their their score for um stuff and my mum said well you didn't want to help us so she's she's not going to help you and that that was sort of that it was it was a pretty big kick in the teeth that they wanted me to go in and help them when they wouldn't help me sort of thing and again just to if you don't mind me just explaining a bit um that your physical health meant a lack of mobility yes so moving around the school was actually very difficult painful. yeah the, the school was very very big very big but they just they didn't want to didn't want to accommodate me at the time so they just stuck me in a disruptive pupils class just which, so that you'd effectively just be in one place all the time without yeah to pretty much yeah so um as you as you um got older then you had all these connected illness so uh, osteoarthritis fibromyalgia which is incredibly painful so i understand yeah um so uh, it's, it's around that time then that you seem to just confront your fears really um yeah how, how did how did that happen would it be fears of doing taxidermy or fears of fears of death about from what your your biography says you um seem I to can't, i kind of got used to it. i there's a few there's been a few near misses that i've had which i think has made me fully accept everything i sort of was more accepting as i grew up but i had um my gallbladder removed and that ended up having a neuroendocrine tumour in it, which none of us knew about. It was a very big surprise. Can you just explain I, a bit more about that, Hannah, what that, what that is? Because that was a very long word. Um, neuroendocrine tumour, it's a, I don't even, it's quite a rare type of cancer. Um, it's normally, I can't remember the places it normally is, but it's very rarely in the gallbladder. Right. So that's another thing I have to be awkward about is have it in the place where it's not supposed to be. <laughs> um, so I had uh, my gallbladder removed and they, they found it during that surgery. And about a week after the surgery, I was I had a, a bag that was um, collecting bile, I guess. And I'd had quite a bad bile leak and I'd gone septic and I had to be rushed to hospital and that was a big moment where I felt like I was I was gonna die and it it was absolutely horrible was, I'm not gonna lie to you it was horrible and how old would you have been at this stage about 20, 26 I think right goodness so I had that they got me on antibiotics and it seemed to, to stop everything in its tracks. Um, so that was, I think that was my biggest point of accepting death as a whole is experiencing that that near death sort of thing. It makes so you, you were, fully accept you were hosp it. Were you hospitalised for a, for a while with those? Yeah, a fair while. It wasn't it wasn't fun at all. I don't like hospitals. So. Being stuck no. in hospital was not fun. No, no, not at all. But that was a situation where you really felt you were in somebody else's hands, essentially. So you just yeah. had to accept the situation you were in. Yeah, I had no idea what was going on around me. It was it was absolutely horrible. The feeling was horrible. I've never felt so 
ill in all my life and it's just it was very very unpleasant and it's something that still I can still picture in my mind I can still feel it as well which is really weird I can just feel this burning in my chest of where it was where I had this leak and it was all through my body it's absolutely horrible goodness goodness so your body was trying its best to fight uh the infection yeah. it was dealing with but ultimately it was the uh, antibiotics which were able to get on top of it yeah goodness so while you were recovering from that uh is that when you then started to investigate this subject of taxidermy in more detail or had you already begun i'd already i sort of already begun my early stuff was absolutely terrible <laughs> i've seen some pictures of some of the stuff i've done and i'm like what were you thinking it's so bad but, but so we, we, really we all start somewhere yeah we, well this is it we've got to start with how do you start you know you can't work yourself up to do <laughs> these two really small things and then gradually get bigger how, how do how do you start when, what was your first occasion when you decided to go ahead I saw a roadkill wood pigeon I was living in Shotley at the time and it's just one big road out to Shotley and there is always roadkill out there always and I'd seen, I'd always see roadkill and I think, no, I can't do that. And then one day I saw a roadkill wood pigeon. And I was like, I wonder. So I stopped and I picked it up and I put it in the freezer and I ordered everything that I needed to, to do what I needed to do. And I was absolutely terrified because I was like, can I, can I really do this? Can I cut into a dead animal when I profess to love animals, that sort of thing? And um, I got everything that I needed and I managed to do it. I didn't get a mount out of it because wood pigeons are terrible for taxidermy because when you see a wood pigeon that's been hit by a car and there's four miles of feathers, that's exactly how they work in taxidermy. They just explode. Oh. So um, that didn't work out, but it gave me my first experience yeah. with taxidermy, with cutting into an animal. So. I, I, I'm assuming that, uh, at least on the outside, it looked pretty good condition. Um, it did. It looked there was hardly any feathers on the road. There was no no real blood, anything like that. So I was just like, okay, we'll give it a go. And it was the worst worst thing I, I did. But it it was my first step into mm. into doing taxidermy. And and I guess for all of us who have no knowledge of this whatsoever, we're thinking to ourselves, are there any rules on this? So for roadkill in particular, is there any? Um, roadkill, as long it's, well, with roadkill, you can't pick up otters. They are heavily um, protected. So you have to have a special license to be able to pick them up and store them in your freezer. Um, it's normally for members of the Guild of Taxidermists who will get a, a license to hold an otter. Um, otters can't be taxidermied for personal use. Like someone can't come to me and say, oh, I want an otter mountain. It has to be for an educational establishment to say, Ipswich Museum said, we've got an otter and we want to have it mounted. Mm. They could, as long as they had the license, but you know, Joe Public can't have an otter mounted 
Um, it's the same with bats as well. All native bats are um, heavily protected. Um, you can't touch them without a license, dead or alive as well. Um, what are the other ones? The only other ones that I know that need a license are dolphins and porpoises, but you, you're not going to find them on the A14. Just <laughs> So um, those Some, are the other two. Something would have two. seriously changed with global warming if you thought. Yeah, that would have gone very, very wrong if there's a porpoise on the A14. But yeah, they're the, the only ones. Yeah, okay. Sorry, we're laughing about something that's pretty serious stuff. Um, but so let's, uh, going back to your first experience, and first of all, I must just touch on that you put it in your freezer because you just sort of, it was a passing comment and I just somehow missed that um you put it in your freezer what with the garden peas yep. and yeah whatever else you <laughs> literally in a tesco's carrier bag next to peas put it straight in there <laughs> okay um i must just ask for your ongoing work at the moment do you have a separate freezer for your work as opposed to what your yeah i've got quite a few freezers <laughs> there is in the food freezer downstairs, there's currently a budgie in the food freezer that I really need to get out, but that's in there. Yeah, well, um, wouldn't, wouldn't go far, would it, if it was... No, definitely yeah. not. Wouldn't make a, a good no, roast for... No. But no, I've got two chest freezers, two normal-sized kitchen freezers, and I've got a very large freezer at my parents that's got some peacocks in because they they are huge oh, so yes. i need a very big freezer for them goodness me so you yeah so that's where you store your future work if i can put yes. it that way okay um so let's return back to this wood pigeon that um <laughs> the outcome the outcome wasn't as good as it would be nowadays if you did it no. that's the, but you have to learn somewhere don't you yeah <laughs> so what was next uh i think it was a pheasant and that was terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I remember it and I decided that I was going to give it a top hat, a monocle and a cane, which never, never materialised. But that was my plan. But that that was that was terrible. It was so bad. So again, was that side of the road? Saw the pheasant? Yeah, literally yeah. every time I went out, I would pick up roadkill, whether it was a hare, a pheasant anything like that I would I would literally pick it up and people local to Shotley would sort of hear about me and they'd go oh I found this in my garden do you want it sort of things so the word sort of got out and that would I'd get people messaging me on Facebook like this has just flown into my window do you want it sort of thing or there's this thing dead on the on the road in this location do you want it sort of thing so it sort of word spread so I had quite a few sources of where to where to find stuff which is quite quite nice that people supported but yeah but that's why you needed to invest in freezers fairly soon I suspect (laughs) (laughs) so from from those early beginnings um and obviously the offerings that were brought to you by different people um finding uh birds in every case was it birds uh, pretty much on that we're dealing I was moment? dabbling in birds and mammals at the time because I wasn't sure what I wanted to work on and anything that sort of came came in I just practiced on so I, so I wasn't what would, have been, wasn't what would have been your first mammal then I believe it was a squirrel 
because I literally have half the population of Felixstowe squirrels in my freezer currently because they're all I pick up off the road. Right. They're just, they're everywhere. I just seem to pick one up literally every day from somewhere. It's ridiculous, but they are the most common thing to pick up is a squirrel. And, and when, when was that first uh, mammal attempt after all these birds that you've been working on? Um, I think it wasn't long after my horrific pheasant that I did I sort of mix the two so I'd do pheasant or squirrel or this or that sort of just whatever really took me fancy and I got out of the freezer that day that sort of thing yeah yeah but I guess a lot of it is just practice isn't it in the <laughs> sense that obviously you need the skill and there's nothing I will be coming anywhere close to but you need to be able to practice with birds and then in turn with mammals in order to progress yeah. And, and yeah so I'm going to then ask a few bits and there might be some of you a little bit squeamish uh, and I hope you don't mind answering these questions so you obviously get to work open them up so you, I know you make reference to buying scalpels and, and so yeah. on so I suppose <laughs> a little bit like an operation that we might have seen on tv and yeah. in a hospital or something um and then you're obviously removing uh the parts that would decompose I'm assuming so you so, want to leave it what do you leave inside if I can be sort of quite clear about I, I, I would try not to be graphic because I'm so used to this that someone will go oh and I'm like oh yeah you don't sort of you don't live this day by day so sometimes I, I don't realize that I go graphic in what I say because I'm just so used to it so I normally make a cut from the top of the breastbone down to the cloaca which is the scientific term for bum hole and um i will then part the, the skin so you've got like this it's, it's a membrane that will stick the skin to the the meat of the the body um so i'll cut off the hip joints so i've just got the legs disconnected i do the same with the wings um, and then I will go all the way up to the head, invert the head, and then I'll take um, the neck off from the back of the head. So I'm literally left with a body and a neck. That's what comes out. So very similar to like, a chicken you get out of Tesco's, but this has got its neck sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the leg bones are left in, but I remove all the meat and the tendons and all stuff like that from those bones um, I do the same with the wings so all the the meat's removed and I do the same with the head so eyes brains meat all that's removed um, and that's sort of the the basis that's how you have a skin of a bird that's the basis of yeah so are you keeping the you're keeping the skeletal um, aspect intact or that all comes out as well so the, the wings and the legs and the skull will stay in a mount. It's right. just the, the body and the neck that will be um, replaced with an artificial body and an artificial neck. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just had to deal with that because I'm thinking about <laughs> it. So I'm just thinking of what anybody else wants to deal with. Okay. So I've got a bit of a sense of what's going on here now. So what then goes inside once all that's come out? What, what replaces that? Um, I will carve a body out of blue foam, which is very much like insulation. So it's like that very lightweight foam material. 
Yeah, so um, it's an exact replica of of the body, and then you've got the neck material here. So yeah. that's the stand-in for the neck, and that's just... So that's something that's built around a wire, effectively. So you've got yeah. the wire going into the foam body, and then you're building yeah. up a, a neck. So effectively, you're creating almost like a sculpture of the, yeah. the skeletal form of the bird in this yeah. case. And then you put the skin back around all of that. But all the, the skin will go in a wash. It will be degreased with very liquid of all things. Um, because a lot of bird skins will be quite greasy. So you want to remove the grease out of the skin. So they have, that's the first bath. Um, the second bath is a, a cold water bath of parcel non-bio just to get any remaining dirt or blood out of the, the feathers. And then they are, I sort of wrap them in a towel to dry them off just to get the, the worst of the moisture out. And I tan every bird skin. So I've got a paint on tan solution that preserves the bird skin and it's um it's pest free as uh, cloves, moths are one of the biggest problems of taxidermy is they really like to, um, eat taxidermy so the the preservative that i use is a good deterrent to get rid of like stop them from from nibbling on taxidermy but yeah, yeah pretty much the process goodness so once you've cleaned up the skin and you've created this amazing uh sculpt effectively a sculpture with that <laughs> foam um well that you're creating a 3d piece of art really to yeah. then build everything around that does it get sewn together stuck together how do you then so i will wire the the leg bones and the wing bones i will rebuild the muscles that i've removed so i will use um pillow wadding which i'll bind around the wire and the bones so it rebuilds the definition of the the meat that i've removed i will rebuild the head so i will fill it with clay i have artificial eyes that um i get in from the netherlands so they're exact replica of the eyes of whatever bird i'm working on um that sort of put together and then i will thread the wires through the body form and then make sure it's all stable sew up the initial cut that I've made along the front of the bird and then it will then be blow dried um, just to get it back to its normal sort of fluffy self and then that's when the real sort of hard work begins is positioning the legs and the wings and then you do the grooming and it's that's that's the headache part because <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the stage when this sounds slightly strange using the term personality for a bird, but that's when you're bringing it to life in a way, I suppose, because yeah. all the rest is very most mechanical, isn't it? And that you've yeah. got you're the cleaning out, your blow drying and all of that. But once you put all the parts together, you've got yeah. to make it, it's got to look pretty real. And I guess that's why your wood yeah. pigeon and <laughs> so on at the start, it was probably this last bit that was... The yeah. difference between it looking real and not with with the grooming and the positioning part i think that is the most important part of taxidermy because 
you know, a lot of people could skin a bird and then start to put it together. But unless you've got the, the right anatomy, how to place the wings, how to bend the legs, um, how to sort of lay the feathers, I think that is when the real skill comes in. Because I've seen a lot of people who are just beginning and I, I look and I was like, if you just change that there and if you just change it here, so any someone who's just coming into you know the art, it is very very difficult to get those that positioning right. It takes so much practice. You've got I've been to various places to just watch birds, how they fold their wings, how they sit, how they walk. It it's very um, it's not just working on a dead bird, it's watching live birds for references as well. So you know how everything works, how they look, how they stand, all that sort of thing. So the, the grooming and the positioning part is definitely the most important part. That's the make or break for a mount is when it's, when it's put together and it, it's positioned, that's definitely. So are there times when you've gone through all the other process and just found that last bit? <laughs> this just isn't happening. <laughs> yeah. You've, you put in all the, I was going to say the yeah. hard work. This is hard work, but yeah. I've had some birds that I've gone through everything with and I'm just grooming it and I've had a patch of feathers slip from bacteria buildup and it's just been like I've sat here for four hours positioning the wings and doing all this and there's just this one patch of slip that's created a bald patch and I'm like yeah I can't I can't fix that so oh, no. it does get really disheartening when it happens but it doesn't happen too often no 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 absolutely so we've been talking about the how you got into it and the sort of early days of the experiment and now how you're obviously perfecting this and just the very long process that's involved but um you you are now receiving commissions for people yeah so they will now come to you with their pet yeah i get pets people that have you know been driving along and they've seen like a roadkill barn out on the side of the road and they just want it done for themselves that sort of thing so not even i don't just specialize in pets it's any sort of bird that anyone comes across and they they sort of go you know I didn't think I liked taxidermy but I really want this this bird immortalized that sort of thing so it's a, a very it varies a lot of what people want doing mm. so for example what uh, birds have you got on the go at the moment which are commissions from I finished a cockerel Tuesday I think it was no, that was that was a little peaking bantam hen chicken that I did on oh. Monday and Tuesday. And I finished a cockerel oh god, Wednesday, I think. So there's there's quite a few different birds on the go. So it's it's sort of sort of like bake-off in my studio. Sometimes we have chicken week, sometimes we have small bird week, sometimes we have like COVID week, that sort of thing. So there's always different different things on the go but I've got a jackdaw in soak at the moment for someone that they found that they want mounted so he's oh, he's in his quite bar. striking the completely black jackdaw. they're amazing yeah. a lot of people don't realize how many colors are actually in 
crows and jackdaws. There's some really amazing blues and purples in crows feathers, but people just don't really get to see them up close enough to realise. Yeah. I suppose, it, you know, how the light catches them is... Uh... Yeah, they've got some amazing colours to them, especially magpies. Magpies, the, the white and the blue contrast against each other is absolutely beautiful. It's mm. so stunning. Lovely. So that, to me, this is comes back to this issue that we talked about earlier on about you and the whole aspect of coping with death. And for, for many people who've had a bird as their pet, um, having that comfort of having a representation of... Yeah. Because it won't have their personality. I know that's something that mm. you feel very strongly about. You've got to be yeah. very careful. Yeah. So that. if someone will contact me and say that they've lost um their their budgie or their cocktail i'll say to them you know when you feel ready put put him in in the freezer because I, I, I know how difficult is that that is because you think is it still alive sort of thing even though you know it's not it's just that that sort of initial feeling so i say you know get her him or her into the, into the freezer and then take a couple of weeks to really think about it because when you initially lose an animal emotions are really heightened and sort of like in a bit of a mess so I always say you know give it two or three weeks and then revisit it and think is this something I want to do because mm. you could just you know the, the animal dies and then you go oh yeah I want it I want it taxidermy in and then when it comes to it, you're like, well, I don't know why I ever made that decision. Mm. So I always say, you know, give it a couple of weeks and really think about it. But is this what you want done mm. sort of thing? Because it's definitely emotions can blow your judgment. So I always say, you know, give it, give it time, really think about it and then go from there. Mm. Yeah, as, as you say, it's there could be a sense of disappointment at the end yeah. of it, isn't it? So it's good, as you say, to, to just stop and, and think rather than rushing into, yeah. into it. Yeah. Um, so if people want to find out more about you, Hannah, and the work that you do, how, how can they find that out? Um, there is my Facebook. Uh, I have Instagram for all my creatures and I have a website. I don't update my website that often because I don't know how to um but Facebook and Instagram are pretty much updated every day so whatever I'm working on is is on there and I normally post about my live birds because I normally have um my cockatiels working with me and causing trouble so they're, <laughs> they're normally on there as well and do you have people interact with you off the back of that where people are then saying oh this is fascinating how do you get into taxidermy or um, would you consider taking my parrot or whatever I've what's had, the response you get to that i've had people say oh i don't think i like taxidermy but i'd really like a, a such and such or you know i really want my bird taxidermy when it when it passes that sort of thing a lot of mm. people are coming to the realization that taxidermy isn't this bad thing um, because we have the Victorians to thank for that because they they went out and shot anything that moved whereas now we have so many regulations in place 
So, you know, there's still that that stigma that everything is shop protection, which it isn't. We've got a lot of guidelines to, to follow nowadays. And it's just getting that message out there that it's not like the old days. You know, it's it's so much different that us as taxidermists, we're not horrible people. We're not, you know, we don't hate animals. A lot of us have pets. A lot of us, you know, really love animals when we're passionate about what we do. It's just an old stigma of, mm. of the art. So it's like, just don't, don't be afraid of taxidermy. It's, it's not something that's bad, but the, there is definitely more um, interest in taxidermy. It's more acceptable. It's like, I've done a lot of work for tattoo studios. They want a crow or this or that in their, in their studio and stuff like that. So it's definitely more acceptable to have taxidermy. It's just getting that message fully across to everyone that it's not like how it used to be it's changed a lot nowadays as mm. to what we we can and can't do well it's absolutely astonishing and and it's <laughs> it i think you may have said earlier before we started recording it is a form of art it is. and uh, just looking at the skill that you had in well you were just showing me on the screen there of um of the body of the bird and the neck and so on that um and how you will then put that in the, mm. into a place it's yeah astonishing absolutely astonishing yeah. so yeah fascinating stuff thank you and and i must just say the fact that you said as part of this that your your husband just put does he put up with it or is he part of the the um i must just ask about that because you mentioned that in your your biography he I think he gets bored of hearing because I, I sort of sit and I go I've got this idea for a mount and I think he just sort of tunes out <laughs> I just sort of talk at him about my my ideas but he's he's got his sort of he says to me oh if, if someone sends you this can can I have it stuffed for, my, for myself so he's got I did him um a grey heron as a wedding present and it's in a case because he the stupid thing is he ha absolutely hates grey herons because he's got a koi pond and he once had a grey heron steal quite a few of his fish. Mm. So it was sort of like a running joke that I, I mounted a grey heron for him. So now he's got one in a case. So he's got one up on a, on a grey heron sort of thing. But he, he's, he looks out for stuff. He picks stuff up. He wants um was out cycling and he picked up a dead buzzard and got it home on his bike I don't know how he did it but he did it so he's he's always you know on the lookout he's he's helped me skin stuff you know all different things I think he's he's learned that his wife is very weird and that it's never going to change and that there is always going to be something dead somewhere he just did not like the box of macerating badger skulls in the garden <laughs> he absolutely threw a huge wobbly over that he wasn't very impressed you've got to understand your boundaries that's yeah the thing that's like, what all marriages for, are like for education he's like i don't care if it's for education it stinks 
yeah it's the only thing you throw a wobbly about I'm not allowed to do that again no no that's fair enough as you say you've got to understand it sounds like the two of you get on brilliantly and um it's been lovely hearing about your work um Hannah because it is just a remarkable form of art really and Thank you. incredibly technical but yeah what really comes across is is your love for for, for the beauty in all of these amazing animals yeah. um, and birds and preserving that is, yeah. is really the nature of what you're doing. I just want people to realise that it's not not like the old days, that there is, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's, you know, it has changed and that what, what we do is something that it, it is art. I know it's a bit morbid, but it, it, it is art and it is... I absolutely love my job and I love that I can recreate something that would have, you know, rotted down into nothing and it can be made beautiful again and it can be admired in death where somewhere it would have rotted down, it would have become nothing, that sort yeah. of thing. So yeah, yeah it, is, it is an art and I love it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for taking the time to speak to us thank today. You. Really, really found it fascinating. Thank you so much, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. Uh, please do subscribe if you possibly can and give us a five star rating so that others can soon discover about the podcast. Uh, it was wonderful to be able to speak with Hannah today and find out about this rather unusual. It is an unusual be but it's become a business for Hannah of taxidermy and uh, Hannah's just really keen I think to dispel maybe some of the horrible thoughts or misconceptions that we may have about this art form of taking the beauty within an animal or a bird and uh, continuing to display that after it has died uh, so yeah just lovely to talk to Hannah and just understand about her absolute love of the, the animals and the birds themselves and how um, she's able to continue this 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 work so i'm really grateful as ever to the team that supports us in putting this all together uh, for uh, sally birch for booking our speakers kevin birch for his skills in editing and producing and uh, to joy day who puts together uh, all our work online um, really indebted as always to all three of them for everything that they do for us please do join us next time where you never know what we'll have next i'm not even sure what we've got coming up next uh, it will be something related to business a hobby uh, or some charitable work or connected with finance itself so please do join us again on the suffolk money podcast thank you <laughs>